You're listening to the Electronic Media Collective Podcast Network. Yeah, it's a mouthful. For more great shows like the one you're about to enjoy, visit electronicmediacollective.com. And now, our feature presentation. In a world where film studios have pillaged every young adult novel, DC'd every comic book series, and Frankenstein every silver screen monster in search of the next movie mega franchise. Two nerds. Two movies. One cinematic universe. This is Jasper. And this is Randy. We watched two movies. But you know what? Two nerds are not enough for these two movies. We needed a third. We needed to become the the terrible three. So, so we're joined this episode by guest Matt D. Howdy there, Pilgrim. Hey, Matt. So Matt is, man, like, Matt is iconic in the uh, the halls of Grolix. In Grolix history, Matt is up there amongst, I don't know, the gods. <laughs> is there a golden statue of me? Uh, there should be. I, I mean, right now, it's just pewter. But we'll upgrade it later. <laughs> uh, I want I want platinum. Matt has been a longtime listener to the Grolix podcast. I'm assuming the Grolix Cinematic Universe as well. Um, you've been around longer than GCU's been around for sure. And uh, But you are also a podcaster yourself. Do you want to tell the listeners a little bit about your podcast? You do two of them. All right. Yes, I do. Too. I do do. Do 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 Uh-oh. do. Uh-oh. <laughs> Two podcasts. Um, the first one is, of course, uh, the one I do with my kids, and it is Comics with My Kids, where we take a look at a comic book that my son or daughter are reading and uh, review it, and then just kind of give a little bit of, uh, you know, background to the comic book, and then um, you give it to suggestions for other kids to read. The other podcast is the one that I is a section of my heart that I love so much, and that's TV shows. And you know, you ever wonder why are they re- remaking all these TV shows today of stuff from like the seventies and eighties? So I go back and I look at the sixties and I reboot TV shows with today's audience in mind with modern day actors, and I call it the sixties reboot podcast. Which is funny because one of the movies we're doing today was made in the sixties. It's all about synergy it was and i believe by the time this episode goes up or very close to it you will have an episode that if people enjoyed the movies we're going to be talking about tonight you they definitely should check out your upcoming episode because you'll talk about bonanza which was a western tv show bonanza yep yeah speaking of iconic western theme songs and stuff but 60s reboot is a lot of fun because it touches on similar elements that we do here. You're much more informative though. Like I, I, I appreciate you do kind of a deep dive into like what these shows were, who was in it, you know, stuff like that. And then basically you write fan fiction <laughs> based on it. <laughs> uh, yes. You, you fantasy, yes. like modern cast and stuff like that. So it's a lot of fun. If you're interested in hearing the sixties reboot podcast, check out my latest episode at emcpod.net slash sixties reboot. That's six zero S reboot all right so without further bearing the lead we are talking this episode we're we're pretty much about done with season tarantino after today's episode we'll have one more movie to discuss that'll be a special episode our special season finale but now we're up to 
The Hateful Eight. And so we paired that with a movie that makes sense in a very numerical way, The Magnificent Seven from 1960. Now, Matt, I had invited you to, well, basically join whatever episode you wanted, but I threw out Django and Wild Wild West, and you declined and said you'd rather do this one. So why would you rather do Hateful Eight than Django? Mostly it had to do with um, scheduling. But it was also like a cornucopia of things because um, not only was it scheduling, but also because um, I'm probably going to get yelled at, but I really didn't care for the Wild Wild West. <laughs> That's the greatest movie. No, yeah, I get you. Sacrilege. How dare you? And I mean, I, I was in, I was, you know, just out of high school when that movie came out. And yeah, it just, it didn't really pull me in but i love the tv show i was gonna say that's possibly our biggest missed opportunity was not tying into 60s reboot with the wild wild west tv show right had i had i thought a little more about it i probably should have just said uh, we'll work it out but nope i decided to go because i like the i like the hateful eight i mean and i honestly i probably tried watching Django Unchained like maybe three or four times and I kept falling asleep about halfway through really? not because of the movie but just because of the timing that I would watch the movie and every time I look at Jamie Foxx, I can't help but think of him in, from In Living Color. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I hate to say it, but <laughs> no, I get it. I get it. Like, and it's because of his his early comedic stuff. Like, I have that impression of him too. But Django is a movie where it doesn't really impact it for me. But yeah, no, I get it. I get it. Yeah. Well, I'm not complaining. You're you're here now, and I just thought it was funny. I thought maybe it was a Django. Django Hateful Eight specific thing. You had a preference over one over the other, but I should have assumed. I should have assumed maybe, you know, maybe it's Wild Wild West. No, 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 no. It couldn't have been that. (laughs) So you actually recommended Magnificent Seven. I kind of threw it out to you if you had any suggestions. And initially you threw this out. Then you're like, well, maybe we should do Seven Samurai. So initially that's what we were going to do until I was like, I don't know how we're going to connect these two movies. <laughs> so let's do Magnificent Seven instead. Yeah. And, I, and, and you know, honestly, I was thinking about that because I make, I, I like the Magnificent Seven. I like the Seven Samurai. I like Akira Kurosawa. And I thought, I, I got to find a way. I know I'll find a way to tie samurais into cowboys. Who does that? How does that not sound awesome? A cowboy, samurai? It does sound awesome. I mean, I'll give you that. Like, it would have been pretty cool. But logistically, I didn't. I guess we could have went sci-fi with it, <laughs> but <laughs> I'm like the technically the settings are s- s- separated by oceans and hundreds of years. I, I don't know how to do this. <laughs> Although nobody in America knows like the time frame of when samurais were uh, kicking around, so nobody would have complained. Plus, nobody would have right. complained anyway. But still, okay. So let's go ahead and kick into these these reviews here, and then of course. We'll do our cinematic universe. All right. So first, we're going to talk about the Magnificent Seven from from two thousand. No, I'm kidding. Yeah. Jasper, Don't I, you I, I want. Don't no, you do that. I want to hear, dude. I'm. I'm actually. Okay, let me do this intro. Then we'll get into this because I actually, I'm. I'm kind of glad that mistake was made because I'm curious to see how they compare. The Magnificent Seven from 1960. Synopsis, an oppressed Mexican peasant village hires seven gunfighters to help defend their homes. This was directed by John Sturgis, 
a screenplay by William Roberts. And there's also several uncredited screen uh, writers, including basically everybody who uh, had a hand in Seven Samurai. This is basically the American remake of Seven Samurai. Starring Yul Brenner. Yul Brenner. Did we decide it was Eli Wallach or Wallace? It's, it's got an H. Eli Wallach, Steve McQueen, Charles Bronson, Robert Vaughn. Oh, where's the other people? I know there's a few other people worth mentioning. Brad Dexter, James Coburn. That's one of them for sure. Uh, and, and several people. There's lots of people. At least seven. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the Magnificent Seven. I do want to actually start with Jasper on this one because he he had an experience here. So Jasper, I didn't specify when I told you we're going to watch the Magnificent Seven. And as I'm watching this movie, yep. <laughs> I, a thought occurred to me, and I'm like, no, he wouldn't. No, he wouldn't watch the remake, would he? Oh, I bet he might. He might. <laughs> and it turns out you did. Mm-hmm. 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 <laughs> okay. Well, I'm. <laughs> uh, however, you did. You did then this evening, right up till like thirty minutes ago. Watch the 1960 version. Mm-hmm. Um, had you ever seen this? Had you ever seen either film before? And what did you think? How did? How did it? Like, what are your impressions? Well, I can see what you you hit the problems you had with the remake, but I had seen the remake before. Okay but I have never seen this one before. Okay. Well, I guess we'll continue going around the circle. and But I do want to come back to, at some point, Jasper, don't forget, I, I do want to kind of get your opinion on how the original and the remake kind of con- contrast and compare because that's that's something we don't really do that often on the show. All right, Matt, had you seen The Magnificent Seven before? And what are your thoughts? What are your initial thoughts on it? Uh, yes, I had seen The Magnificent Seven before, and it was actually the second movie I seen with Yul Brenner. For me, it's like walking down nostalgia, uh, because you know my grandmother was a big Western fan. She would watch Bonanza and you know Magnificent Seven and every John Wayne movie possibly made. So watching it, it kind of brought me back, and and there's a lot of really cool actors that you know I saw later on in life as they got older. But yes, I have seen it before, and it was kind of nice to watch it again because there's some stuff that you know that you kind of forget. The memory kind of cheats, and it's like, I th- wasn't that 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 line in there about badges? Oh no, no, that was something different. Um, so it was kind of <laughs> yeah. neat to come back and, and kind of refresh my mind as to uh, as to the Magnificent Seven, and uh, and I'm you know maybe I'm just older than I appear, but I've always been a big Steve McQueen fan. And, you know, The Magnificent Seven was one of those ones that he was part of, and he he was just becoming a big-time star. And so there was a lot of, not really head-butting, but um, him and you, Brenner, they were always trying to, like, show each other up. Okay, kind of sure. Show just who like was the better, the better actor. Competitive, so. competitive uh, bravado BS, you know? Yeah. Yes, yeah. I, I learned a little background information about it, because I did a... a deep dive history into Steve McQueen several years ago. And I ended up watching a lot of documentaries about him. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm a film nerd, a film nerd. Yes. You don't belong here. (laughs) Okay. So magnificent seven. I, I know I've seen parts of this for sure. I don't think I've ever sat through the whole thing. Start to finish. This is 
definitely the kind of movie that I recall my dad watching, especially my dad had the biggest man crush on Steve McQueen. But, you know, my dad was definitely that age, like Steve McQueen. And I agree, Steve McQueen was pretty cool. But, like, for a certain generation, like, Steve McQueen was the coolest. But also, this is very much the kind of Western that be on at my grandpa's house, like, 24-7, <laughs> you know? So I'm kind of torn on it, like, because in a way, that's kind of a con for me, just because, like, it is that old, old golden age Hollywood-style filmmaking. It's a little cheesy. The score is a whole thing, but the score, is, it is iconic, and it's very recognizable. But for me, that's also a detriment because... I just associate it with every movie that parodied or every cheesy like spoof on Westerns that used a similar, if not the exact same score. It's very recognizable, but that's not the movie's fault. But that said, like, yeah, I enjoyed this. I watched the, I watched seven samurai, which this is, like I said, this is pretty much the American remake of that. Not pretty much. This is, this is the ring to (laughs) seven samurai's reboot. But (laughs) Uh, so, so I had a hard time not comparing, so I didn't, I did, I compared it through the whole thing. And honestly, this is a fairly accurate remake, but being that it's through that weird 1960s Hollywood filter, you know, the the very Technicolor filter, I feel like it loses, the story itself loses a little something, uh, loses some of its edge for sure. But, you know, I, I enjoyed it. I did enjoy it. It's a classic. I can see why it's a classic. And... I mean, the story it's based on is good. Some of the some of the more fun aspects of the story do come through. I enjoyed the re- I, I enjoyed the recruiting scene, which goes you know the whole like I don't know what would that be first act the the later half of the first act or so where they're recruiting the uh, the magnificent seven. There's a lot, yeah. lot there's a lot of fun there. It's pretty interesting. So yeah, overall I enjoyed it. I have to say I'm a big I'm a big fan of the getting the team together scenes in a in a movie, you know. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was neat how each time, you know, because uh, Steve McQueen's character Vin says to to your your uh, Chris Adams <laughs> character, uh, you know, he, he holds up his hands, says shows two, and then later on it shows three, and you know, it's it's definitely kind of cool how they kind of bring it all together like that. Yeah, it's it's kind of cheeseball, but it's still fun and entertaining. And those two, like even Yul Brenner, Yul Brenner has a really. I was telling I was telling Matt before, you know, I maybe it was during the pre-show. So Yul Brenner, he died, you know, a long time ago, fairly young. Although he doesn't, I don't know how old he was because he doesn't look young. Maybe he wasn't that young. But <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, though, with Yul Brenner, I recognize him primarily from Westworld, the original movie, uh, which he got because he, you know, was a Western guy. Yul Brenner is like, he's a cowboy, but he's a robot cowboy. He's going to kill everyone. <laughs> so, like, that's how I know Yul Brenner as the robot murderous cowboy in black from Westworld. And, uh, <laughs> spoilers. <laughs> so it was weird watching this with that in mind because he's, like, so nice. He's, like, the friendliest dude in this movie. And I am interested to hear that that trivia you were talking about, uh, Matt, because I like Steve McQueen and Yul Brynner's chemistry in this. You know, they're just like, for whatever reason, the two guys that like randomly come together and they're just like instantly friends. You know, they give each yes. other the, uh, the approving look and like, 
when somebody else does something, they kind of look at each other and chuckle a little bit, you know, that kind of thing. I think they yeah. have good chemistry and man, Steve McQueen is just pure charm. Like you don't have to give him any dialogue. He just can stand there in the scene and he's just pure charm. You want me to go ahead and tell you the little trivia that I learned? Yeah, go ahead. Let's, yeah. So, okay. so what's this story? Did they like butt heads a bit? A little bit. They, they both, they both had rather large egos. They both wanted to be the top build on the, the movie. And both had really great agents and they, they were trying to negotiate to be the top build actor. And that's why if you look at the credits, it says, you know, starring. And then it was like a, a whole plethora of people. Nobody really, you know, took the, the, the big top, top name because they, they kind of split it between him and uh, Steve McQueen. And they were always trying to do a better performance, which I think is really kind of shows in the show. Mm. In the mm. fact that they were both doing different things to try to, you know, like, the big thing was the opening sequence of the funeral march with the, the hearse and how they take the hearse from the funeral parlor all the way up to the top of the hill where Boot Hill is at. So Yul Brenner goes on the, on the stagecoach first and he's, you know, in position and he checks his, his gun and everything. And then Steve McQueen shows up and he says he'll help out. And as they're sitting on the wagon, they're each doing little things as the wagon's going. Like Steve McQueen will pick up a, a scatter shots and he'll shake it next to his ear to hear it and he'll put it in the gun. He's kind of playing with the gun. And then Ewell Brenner's kind of doing a little thing to the side, trying to like show that, Hey, you know, I know more than you kind of thing. Uh-huh. So there's like these little, little things they were doing on the, on the stage coach. Like, you know, you would see two guys at, at a thing trying to flex their muscles. Like, oh, you know, I'm I'm the top dog. I'm gonna flex my muscle here. I'm gonna each you know, of them kind of trying to this gun. Each of them trying you know? to steal the scene. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and then, uh, and then, they, and then, all of a sudden, you know, the the scene goes to a more actiony scene, and then that's when it all kicks in, and they they do their top performance of just, you know, yeah, it just it, it all kind of like comes together, and then that's when the characters kind of understand, hey, I'm with a guy that knows what he's doing. And the actors kind of fell in that, that same role. Like, oh, hey, we, we really appreciate each other's performances. So yeah, the, the whole scene with them on the hearse was just the pivotal moment that they both kind of got into a relaxed position with each other as actors as well as characters. Okay, interesting. And you're right, like from a story point of view, that is like, that's their introduction into the movie, but to each other. Did either of you guys find that whole like scene kind of ridiculous though? Like just the excitement of it. Like I did like the ride up there where they're tense. I like the tension, but the, uh, like the weird celebration, it's like, well, all those racists are still there. <laughs> like you didn't like save the town from racism. They're still there. <laughs> hey, that was 1960s racism that they tackled. That's the best they could do. <laughs> I guess I guess oh, when it comes Lord. to racism, you just appreciate the momentary victory. So, <laughs> yay, we got the dead body of the of the engine up here. <laughs> exactly. Oh man. Oh, was that was that? Did I say engine? Oh, I meant to say Native American. <laughs> well, that's what they would have said. So, Jasper, what did you think of this cast? Because I know you're not super up on a lot of. I'm a huge fan of Ewell Brenner. Really? It's one of my yeah. Of course, although I've seen this not. Not really willingly. I've seen, I've seen the Ten Commandments with him in it. Okay, sure. At least twenty six times. Dude, they run that. Um, they run that on TV all the time. And uh, you have you, your family's kind of religious, right? Do they like make you watch it well, or not? Not my not the family I live with. My dad. Okay. Every weekend we went out to see him. We basically had to watch this movie because he didn't really want to watch us around the house. So 
we sat in front of the TV and watched Ten Commandments. So I liked him in that movie, mm-hmm. um, especially because when he says, so it is written, so shall it be done. And the King and I. Uh, and he, like I said, he's just, I like how he kind of commands the scene. Because, like, talking about this movie and the remake, I feel like him and Denzel kind of have that same look about them when they do movies, you know? Is, is that who plays the character in Magnificent Seven? I believe, I think they're supposed to be. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Denzel is the uh, Yule Brenner character. Although I don't think he uses the name Chris Adams. And then, of course, Chris Pratt is the um, Steve McQueen character. Really? Okay. Yeah. But yeah, I, I, they both have that kind of look about them. Oh, he's Russian-born American actor. Okay, maybe that's the accent. He's got a very unique voice, Yul Brenner does. Yeah, it's almost like Eastern European. Yeah. And one of the characters even says something about, well, you don't speak well, but blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and that's really when I started to like key into, like, well, what what is that accent? That's why I just kind of laugh about the Ten Commands, because he does not sound Egyptian at all. <laughs> <laughs> that reminds me. <laughs> so I was glad to see there were actually, like, Mexican and Hispanic actors in this movie and not just a bunch of white people doing Mexican face. Is that a thing? Oh, you mean like you mean like Charlton Heston doing doing uh, a Mexican? Yeah, or exactly. Charlton Heston doing an Egyptian? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> or Charl yeah, why did cast Charlton Heston in basically anything? It doesn't matter if they if the character's white or not. However, some of the first off, any I get why they did it, especially an older Hollywood movie, but when you have scenes where it's nothing but Mexican characters all speaking together and they're speaking English takes me out of it every time. It's like, that doesn't make sense. Why are they doing that? Also, there are several of those actors who sound more American than I do. Like they speak some amazingly just straight up. I was, some of them kind of blew my mind. I was like, wait, wait, wait. Like I, I appreciate that they're not doing the like, they're not all, you know, the over-the-top, like, hey, senor, you're like that, the kind of offensive racist <laughs> accent, but, like... Everybody speak Gonzalez. Dude, some of them were like, you sound wider than I do. Like, what, what's this? <laughs> hey, I had, uh, sorry, I, that was something that, like, it struck me during, while hey, watching senor, this. Hey, senor, I'm from, uh, I'm from Mexico. You know, <laughs> we talk like this. <laughs> let my let me me my my boys come up here from uh from Mexico and we'll uh we'll we'll hire you to come down and you want an enchilacha? <laughs> <laughs> we got Timmy Changas, man. <laughs> Start to sound like a surfer, dude. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I go from New York to to, to Keanu pretty quick. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Charles Bronson is in this. This is uh he's one of the other like actors that I most well know out of this cast and uh again this is something i was saying in the pre-show but like it's so weird to see a young charles bronson because for one he still doesn't look young in this but he is stacked like he is i'm used to an older smaller gun wielding well i guess he wields a gun in this too but uh you know your death wish charles bronson the older charles 70s movies charles bronson and so when I pictured him younger, I think I always thought he was kind of like a maybe a just a, a smaller guy, a, kind of a skinny, scraggly guy. Dude, the guy is a monster. He's like uh, he's he's the mountain. <laughs> he's huge. If they did the MCU Avengers in the '60s, 
I think he would be Captain America. Because, I mean, you mentioned it in the pre-show, you know, that his intro was he was chopping wood. <laughs> he was. You're right. All it was missing is he just needed to, like, lift the last log up and tear it apart with his own with his bare hands. Yeah. And there you go. You got your MCU for this episode. Yay! <laughs> we needed it. We freaking needed it. I'm just joking. Well, this whole movie is like the, this is the Avengers. This is the coming together of uh, all these, you know, you got the knife guy who can throw a knife faster than a person can draw a gun. Uh, unfortunately, he never uses that during the like big action scenes, but still. <laughs> but we'll, we'll forgive it this one time. <laughs> Speaking of the knife wielding guy who was, oh God, his name suddenly slips my mind. Um, I know that's the one I keep losing track of his name too. It's uh here. Let me look. Coburn. James, James Coburn. Coburn. You know, I didn't realize how skinny and tall he is. He's such a string bean. <laughs> I, I mean, I look at him like, okay, well, I'm used to seeing James Coburn as, you know, the old man from like the spy films and the old man in this and the old man in that, you know. And here he is young and skinny. I'm like, he was that skinny? He's like David Tennant skinny. <laughs> I'd say, yeah, for sure. At least David Tennant skinny. No, you're right. I, I, when I think of him, I think of like, he seems kind of barrel chested as he gets older and that is not this guy at all. No, uh, his character was, it was fun too. It was interesting. Like I had mentioned, I had a hard time not comparing it to seven samurai. And one of the things that I feel like this lacks a little bit is some of the kind of the character development of some of these characters. And, you know, it's kind of Hollywoodized, but it, it does pretty well at establishing what most of these characters are. Of course, it's it's a little flimsy. A lot of them are kind of one-sided, but it establishes a lot of these characters pretty quickly with by doing very little. I mean, if you think about Yul Brynner and Steve, Mar- Steve McQueen, Steve Martin. Wow, this would have been a different movie. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the Magnificent Seven Amigos. Oh Lord! That's what, oh man. We should have saved this for that. Uh, it, it does develop their characters as the movie goes along. You know, like Yul Brenner and Steve McQueen. Like they're both sly, kind of friendly dudes, but also like you know they're hired guns, so they're not necessarily good dudes. But you're kind of like, well, what's what's his stake in this? Eventually, they do kind of dive into that a little bit. Well, Jasper, this was the first time you actually sat through it all, right? What did you think of the the gun shootout scenes and the the portrayal of that? I don't think they were too bad. I you know of course the period in which this is of course filmed, but I mean I don't think they were too bad. I mean it it probably doesn't help that you came fresh off of watching the remake before watching this one. (laughs) Yeah, Um, I I don't think I I don't believe I've seen the remake of this, but I've got to imagine they amped up the gunfights a little bit oh yeah yeah they actually use like squibs and and blood packs and 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 blood <laughs> yeah because <laughs> it, it, it is you know and i don't want to step on jasper's toes but it is funny just to to go from watching something like the remake to this 1960s you know censored kind of fighting you know, where you hear the gunshot, you see the gun smoke come out, and then the guy's laying on the ground, and in the next scene, he's got blood on him. Right. 
I think in my mind, I always kind of confuse this with the Dirty Dozen. So when I went into this, I was a little disappointed. I was like, oh, this is like, no, this is going to be kind of squeaky clean, super Hollywood. Whereas the Dirty Dozen, if I'm thinking correctly, is a little later. And that's Sam Peckinpah, I think. But that's kind of when Hollywood Westerns started to get like really, really violent, you know? So in my mind, I always switched those, these, that and this around. So I was a little, a little disappointed going into this. And I was like, oh, I was hoping for some, I was hoping for a bit of ultra violence. <laughs> <laughs> but interestingly, and it makes sense, Seven Samurai it just comes across as so much more brutal. I mean, obviously, because you're talking sword fights versus gunfights. Sword fights are going to be a little bit more <laughs> physically damaging, but... The scope of this feels smaller, even though it's really not. Like, and then compared to like Seven Samurai, I remember, and maybe it's just kind of the general pacing of Seven Samurai. It's everything in that movie is much more drawn out. But it seems like that. It felt like that battle, the battle in Seven Samurai, went on for days, and it doesn't seem as desperate. The scenario doesn't seem as desperate in this. Before spoilers, before the town basically gives up. I wanted to smack I wanted to smack all the farmers though of course but that's kind of the point right like, they're supposed <laughs> to be frustrating I wanted to smack the crap out of them especially at the end I'm like you guys basically won stop it honestly the I think the comparison between the seven samurai and you know a gunfight it, yeah you know we're talking like what 10 15 years between the two when they were shot but the Seven Samurai it seemed more like a dance with the fighting. You know, you can get more. The can yeah, they didn't have like handy camps like they do do now, but you, you definitely get more into it. Yeah, um, bring you into the the tension of of trying to fight somebody with a sword. Whereas you know, gunshot, you just shoot a guy on a horse and you see the rope pull him off. Oh, I mean the 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 blast of the shot, take him <laughs> off his horse. Not not a rope. Not a rope. What are you talking about? You're breaking the illusion. <laughs> <laughs> I, I did appreciate those stunts though boom yank them back and I, I that's a good effect i feel like that gives the uh the the wound impact but a lot of it is the classic like gunshot and then they're just like oh like huddle over and fall off their horse or something that said anytime horses are in a movie especially older movies it just looks so dangerous all the time <laughs> they just <laughs> I, I i get that they're used to like you know it's people People know how to handle horses, but man, it always makes me so nervous because, God, those are such big animals. Yes, and they're heavy. Yeah. It seems so dangerous. All right. Well, hey, Jasper, do you have any other, like, between the two, since I didn't specify and you ended up having to watch both, I feel like I know the answer, but which one did you prefer? Well, I'm I'm a bigger fan of Denzel, and of course, you probably knew I was going to go for that, but I mean... They both have their, their thing, and I think they both should be respected. But, I mean, okay, usually in the, in the sense of remakes, you know, remakes never do as good as, as say, the, the original movie because everybody loves that movie. And then I think that helps or not helps with the mindset when you watch a remake. It's just like, this is going to suck, you know. So, okay, could you point to either – Something the original does better than the remake or something something in the original that really drug it down for you compared to the remake? I don't think 
the original is as in the acting is as, as heavy handed as the new one. So that's, that would be my only really big comparison. You know, it's Denzel was really just Denzel cowboy Denzel. No. <laughs> and you know, it's, it's much more like the intimidation factor and not really just trying to get like the team together. You know what I'm saying? Okay. Interesting. Okay, do we want to roll into ratings and final thoughts? Yeah. Sure. Okay, uh, we'll start. Matt, we'll start with you since you're a guest. Uh, what are your final thoughts and what would you give this out of five stars? Well, this, of course, is, is a classic Western. You know, this was back when I wouldn't say Hollywood was in its infancy, but more like when ho- when Hollywood was a toddler going around leaving crappy diapers all over the place. <laughs> I would have to say that. I really like the movie. I have to pay it a lot of respect. I like Steve McQueen. So I would give it four out of five stars. Okay. And how about you, Jasper? I'm going to go... I'm stuck between three and three and a half. I want to say three and a half. Okay. Kind of the same thing. I'm a big fan of Yul Brynner. And I respect Steve McQueen, too, because I heard that name a lot when I was a kid. Because, my, you know, of course, my parents watched a lot of their movies. Yeah, I see three and a half. Three and a half? Okay. I'm going to say, and I think for a lot of people this would be low, but I'm going to say three. I think it's a good movie. I think it does a lot of things right. Uh, I think it's a pretty accurate remake, and as far as remakes itself goes, you know, being a remake of Seven Samurai, taking the story from a samurai movie and making it a Western, I think is actually pretty clever. The, like, little, um, you know... Uh, Mexican town of farmers. I like that idea. I think that's a clever way to relocate that story. And I get I get why this would be kind of an American Western classic. And like the cast is pretty amazing. Now that said, I realize it's kind of personal biases, but there's several things that kind of drug this movie down for me. The golden age kind of Hollywood style is a con for me. It's kind of cheesy uh, when it comes to Westerns. Like, this is kind of the reason, not this movie, but that kind of movie is kind of the reason I never really liked Westerns when I was a kid. Um, More of a, like, give me a spaghetti Western. Give me something kind of dirty, something gringy, because (laughs) the the West would have been just disgusting and violent. So it's not really, you know, I have that kind of just taste bias. And I, I realized that the Seven Samurai type story existed before Seven Samurai. It's a classic story, but I couldn't help but kind of compare while watching this there's just elements of it that just don't really hold up compared to my memories of seven samurai and some of the characters were super cheese like the guy who like just didn't get that there wasn't like some hidden gold or something you know oh god yeah uh <laughs> which we didn't even touch on but that's fine we don't have to that's pretty much his character he's very one-sided so yeah solid three stars i realize that's going to be low for a lot of people but with my biases, that's what I got to go with. I'm, I know I'm long-winded on everything, guys. I apologize. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. I am a podcaster. This is my craft. <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually cut mine down a little bit because I, I got lost halfway through talking. <laughs> I tend to do that a lot. Um, all right. From the, uh, from the relatively clean and family-friendly-ish world of 
golden age Hollywood westerns to the hateful eight. That's all I'm going to say, just to the hateful eight. <laughs> this is the opposite. This is <laughs> this is the anti that. Our next movie is what, Jasper? This is the hateful eight from 2015. In the dead of a Wyoming winter, a bounty hunter and his prisoner find shelter in a cabin currently inhabited by the collection of nefarious characters. Uh, this is, of course, directed by Quentin Tarantino, written by Quentin Tarantino, and it stars Samuel L. Jackson, Kurt Russell, Jennifer, I forgot, Jason Lay, I want to say this. Right. Lee. Yep, Lee. 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 Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Walton Goggins, Damian Bershire, I want to say that's probably wrong as hell, Tim Ross, of course, Michael Madsen, Bruce Dern, James Parks, and Zoe Bell. I think you're missing somebody. Nah, I don't want to mention Mr. Tatum. <laughs> what? <laughs> Why not? What's wrong with Channing Tatum? Channing Tatum. Channing Tatum. Wow. I always get his name confused because there's an actress out there called Tatum Channing. <laughs> Is there really? Yes. Maybe they're the same. It's just a <laughs> trick. It's a trick they've been playing on us. Tim and Drag. oh the hateful eight okay we should also mention i do believe we all watched the extended cut of this yeah yep okay uh matt had you ever seen hateful eight before and what are your your initial impressions prior to this i saw the the original hateful eight and i watched it when first out back in 2015 and i've seen so much different stuff since then that I kind of forgot a few things. Mm-hmm. So going back watching it, I started again, like watching the Magnificent Seven going down memory lane of, oh, hey, yeah, I remember that. And then, of course, we watched the extended edition. So there was a lot of stuff that I was like, I don't remember it being this long. <laughs> Why? Why is there a three minute sequence of establishing that we're in Wyoming and there's a big, big freaking snowstorm coming? And why are we looking at this, this cross with Jesus Christ on it? That that is the one thing that I recognize is like that's different, but yeah, impressions. It's definitely it's Quentin Tarantino doing a western, not nearly as bloody as Kill Bill, but definitely bloody. Jasper, how about you? I had not had not seen this movie before. I remember the opening scene for some reason. I don't know. One of my brothers was watching it or something. Oh, you had not seen the Hateful Eight. No. Oh, I thought you had. No, I think I might have said I watched it, but I, I think it was actually The Magnificent Seven I had watched. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so. I got you. So did you watch? I, I'm, I got the numbers mixed me up. Sorry. Well, it's I mean, that's why we did it. That higher. should have been my segue. Concussion. Concussion. <laughs> the Magnificent Seven plus one equals the Hateful Eight. Okay, well, Jasper, did you watch the regular version or did you watch the extended version? I watched the extended version. Okay. Oh, interesting. For your first watch. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I have seen this before. And, well, I thought Jasper had seen this. And I knew, um, Matt, you had seen it. So I was like, well, let's do the extended version. Because if we'd all seen the regular cut, and if I'm going to de- dedicate another, uh, like, almost three hours or so to this movie, I might as well go all the way and watch the four-hour extended cut. Plus, I was curious. But yeah, I mean, I like this movie. I like it. It is a Western. It's more Western-y than Django, which Tarantino says is not a Western. It's a Southern. But it's essentially like, 
if this was a TV show, this is just a big, long bottle episode. It's you throw all these characters into one room. Boom, there's your episode. And I mean, there's some stuff outside. There's the there's the, you know, the whole setup with them in the, the carriage. But for the most part, it is a single location movie. So it's uh, plenty of time of Tarantino doing what Tarantino does, and that's writing characters sitting around eating and talking. <laughs> yeah, it's a, definitely a bottle episode, and it goes from one bottle to another bottle. You go from the stagecoach to a layover room. Definitely. <laughs> and the one shot I remember seeing that I was like, well, that's definitely not in the regular cut, is that first shot that you mentioned with the, the very long, pro, very prolonged opening shot of the, the crucifix and the snow. And I, mean, I think it's a cool shot. I think it's, it's, it's super neat, but it does really go on for a long time. But also, for the most part, I don't remember like a lot of new material, but everything does definitely seem like it takes longer. That ride from the opening to getting to the cabin seems like it's much longer in this. Although I couldn't point to any specific thing of like, well, they talked about this more or this is different. It's just, everything seems longer. It seems more drawn out. And I do want to comment on the format. Like technically this isn't a movie the way Netflix has it. Cause it's not like the straight extended cut that Tarantino toured around the 70 millimeter print or whatever that he toured around because they broke it into four episodes and it's even got credits at the end of each episode. Um, so it's essentially a mini series. However, I feel like just doing that format made it easier for me to digest. And I sat through the whole thing in one sitting and I didn't mean to, but every time the, every time the quote unquote episode would end, I'd be like, well, I want to watch the next one now. <laughs> exactly how I felt. Like I felt like this is like how I kind of want to watch a movie that's going to be that long should should do this all the time. Like, <laughs> like, I mean, I know we can't do that, but it's such a weird it, psychological trick, though, right? Because I mean, yeah, it, it made you want more as soon as that episode was over. You know, I think I think I'll be the third one voting for that. Like, I like how they broke it up like that. Um, and yeah, you're you're right. It, it totally like next thing I know, it, the episode was over, and I'm like it's been 59 minutes i want more and of course it also kind of nice because i can't sit through uh, a, a two-hour movie without having to get up at least once to uh use the facilities or something mm-hmm. so it was kind of nice to be able to oh hey uh break great <laughs> yeah yeah I, I mean it's honestly it's something i kind of suspected and this kind of proved it but it's like it's the idea of like it helps that tv series got so good like there's a lot of good tv shows so that kind of helps the whole binge binge thing that became so popular binging shows but it's that whole debate of like melanie used to like make fun of me because she likes watching movies and i had i wasn't watching a lot of movies just because we were watching tv shows but i would scroll through netflix and i'd be like i don't want to watch that movie it's too long it's like two hours long and then let's just watch an episode and then spend like three hours watching a tv series (laughs) it's that whole thing right and it's such a weird trick it's pretty interesting because if this was continuous, like, what, it wouldn't quite be four hours, but it'd be real close to four hours long. I think it'd be real hard to sit through. But the fact that they throw those credits in there, I don't know what the difference is. Made it much easier. Now, I, I got to ask you, did you, and I, I, I did this, I noticed with uh, the latest update I got from 
from Netflix, but you can now skip through the opening credit sequences. Mm-hmm. Did you skip through them? No. Oh, okay. Because I, I, I just, I, after watching the episode, I can't sit in there and watch the recap and then watch the credit sequence go over again. I mean, I was like mine, three minutes mine in. Mine automatically skipped it for me. Mine automatically oh, nice. skipped the recaps. I, I don't think it played the recaps for me. Yeah, mine would just be like, and now you're four minutes in. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it's the platform we watched it on or because we just left, kept letting it roll. So it's like, it, we're not even going to ask. We know. We know. <laughs> we know your habits. We know your dirty watching habits. Okay, the actual, let's talk about the movie itself. How does this compare for you guys to amongst Tarantino's movies? I enjoy this movie. And there's parts of it I enjoy quite a bit. But as a whole, I don't feel like it's his strongest. I would say that. I mean, to me, it was kind of a a callback to Reservoir Dogs. Oh, that's a real good point. You know, where they're kind of in the one room. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's, that's how you find out what the story is. And then right there at the end, it tells you how it all got set up. I mean, I love the acting, but it started to lose me a little bit. Yeah, I wouldn't say it's a strong outing. It's, it's interesting in terms of Tarantino movies because, it, I mean, it's unmistakably Tarantino. The dialogue, like a lot of his movies, you, you hear it. It's just the kind of the attitude. And at a certain point, it does go full Tarantino where Tarantino himself starts narrating over the movie, <laughs> which is a, such a weird decision. And it's so like, I mean, it's not trying to not take you out of the movie, right? It just takes you right out. Was there another Tarantino movie where he he came in and did a narration thing? I have like an inkling that he did that somewhere before, or maybe I'm just thinking that he was telling a story in the movie. I'm, I'm not sure. It's not uncommon for him to randomly bring a narrator into the movie, like three fourths of the way through the movie. But it's I don't think it's ever been him. Uh, like in Inglorious Bastards, for example, randomly Samuel L. Jackson narrates one scene. But I don't believe it's actually ever been Tarantino himself. Hmm. But I th- I feel like that's just his way of getting his cameo in. Otherwise, he'd have to play one of the characters in that room. <laughs> right. It was definitely a way to 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 kind of move the the narrative mm-hmm. to show it from another angle, which I thought was an interesting way to do it. Yeah, I would agree. I've read criticisms that it's kind of a, a lazy plot device to like move it forward quickly, but I, I don't feel like that's the case. I feel like, I felt like it was used to add intrigue to it. You know, I don't feel like it's a con. It doesn't take away from the movie from me. If anything, it signals like, Hey, the movie's going to start moving now because it, it just hangs about. But that said, like I find the scenario intriguing enough through most of the movie that I'm, I'm not bored by it. Even this extended cut, I wasn't bored by it. The characters are all, they are hateful. They're all despicable. Well, except for, what's his name? The driver. And it doesn't pan out well for him. They're all despicable characters, but I, they're interesting. Kurt Russell's character is annoying, though. I would hate to be stuck in anywhere with him for days. Oh, man. he's He is the, he's got to be the quintessential racist cowboy bounty hunter. Right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he, it's like, if Jack Burton was a was a super d- and you know I guess you know slight spoilers he wasn't wrong but he's up in everyone's business before he even really knows 
there's any reason to be suspicious. But I guess the yeah. idea that he's just always suspicious, and clearly he has reason to be. Daisy, them being chained together, and like a lot of times in the, if it wasn't the fact that he was beating on her most of the time, and they're like, they're almost cozied up like a couple most of the movie, and I think that's a really interesting dynamic to where he's literally like, he's a bounty hunter, he beats the crap out of her, and he's going to have her hung, but they've got to be like coupled up for this this whole movie. It's, I don't know, it's an interesting dynamic. Did you ever see the movie Overboard? Yes. Oh god, it, that movie. If if you could take Goldie Hawn and just put her in the role of Jenner, Jennifer Jan or Janet Lee. <laughs> Janet Lee. Jennifer Jason <laughs> Lee. That's it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, it's it's like I think the subtext of them being like almost like a couple. Yeah. You know, like an old married couple. It's like, okay, that's I could see this being like Kurt Russell and Goldie Hawn going on vacation somewhere and arguing the entire time. You know, there, there's a movie right there. But then on top of that, it's set in a Western and he's beating the crap out of her. Cause yeah, it's, it, there's definitely a subtext in there that, that they're more like an old married couple than they are bounty hunter and his bounty <laughs> and not the, not the quicker picker upper kind. <laughs> What do you guys think of the racial aspect of this? Because man, I, I, lo- I a lot of this movie to me feels like Tarantino giving everyone who criticized Django the middle finger, and not just for the for the racial stuff. There, because woo, between that and the violence, those are the two things that Tarantino gets criticized for that with every movie. And Django was a big one, like that people really came after him about. And I feel like he just then was like, well, screw you guys, and just leaned into it as hard as he could with this one. Oh, man. You're you're probably going to edit this this entire thing I'm going to say next. But the whole sequence when Sam Jackson is talking about the Confederate soldier's son. Mm-hmm. Oh, Lord. I'm like, man, that is that is Tarantino just telling, telling all the critics to just, you know, go blow them. Because what's... <laughs> You got the 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 most popular and well known black actor in America, basically getting a blowjob from a racist white, the Southern Confederate soldier. It's like, yeah, that's and it's detailed and like it's not even that he's just telling the story. Flashback, you see this happen. Yeah, it doesn't feel like something that just amused Tarantino or something that like really benefited the story. It felt like a message, not just to racists, but also to maybe people who, yeah, like you said, critics and people who criticize him for things. It, it seemed like a message to everybody. Yeah. <laughs> like, shut up. Go suck Samuel. <laughs> oh. <laughs> And trust me, saying all that, I was editing and and trying to keep it as clean as possible. <laughs> so, Jasper, yeah, tell us more about your thoughts on this movie. I'm super. If you hadn't, so you hadn't actually seen this before. I'm super curious as to like what you thought about it because it is long. Again, I wasn't really when we watched Reservoir Dogs. I wasn't really sold on like staying in that whole room or that one room the whole time. Mm-hmm. But I think there's enough going on in this movie to really keep it going. Of course, the story being 
a big part of it. And I think the thing that really drew me to it was Samuel's acting. He's kind of like the centerpiece, even though Kurt Russell's is kind of like trying to drive you know, kind of drive the drive the bus there. But I really like Samuel and then I guess like he was saying, that scene where he was talking about the Confederate General Sutter was just intense. Like Okay, so what do you guys think about that anyway? Do you think that story was true at all? Like, I mean, you know, in the context of the story, or do you think he was just trying to do what he did, and that was rile up uh, the Bruce Stern character to grab that gun? I almost feel like it was true in the story, in the context of the story. Yeah, um, I'm with Jess from that. I, I, I so want it to be true because, you know, just look at history, you know, and and how how much hate was in in the south and you know during the reconstruction period and okay so maybe i'm getting a little too a little too teachery teacher like teacherly <laughs> teacherly yes do it but you know i can i can totally see someone who has you know been through the been through the war was on the south side having to you know now from their viewpoint cowtail to a union soldier who was a black man who he fought against totally going out there and saying, you know what? There's a bounty on this man. I'm going to go get him. The thing that kind of got me with like trying to think it was real was where he said the worst thing, the worst thing he told me that is he was your son, you know, like he was going to make him pay for his dad sins basically. Mm -hmm. It strikes me as real in that case, but it's, it's hard to say because he could have just been riling him up. Mm Hmm. Either way, I don't know. It works. I kind of like we don't get a definitive on that. And maybe maybe I'm completely off base and we're just supposed to assume it's real. Okay, with that in mind, talk about things that were real and not real. How did you feel when you found out that the Abraham Lincoln letter wasn't real? See, my thing with that was there is a lot of like spins in this movie that I didn't even see coming. He's just like, yeah, it was a lie. And I was like, what? It amuses me how much it hurt the Kurt Russell character, but it's, I, you know, I think it's one of those things where it's more like hurt his pride for, you feel stupid for believing it, but it is interesting because that follows immediately this whole story and him shooting Bruce Dern and it goes right into that. And it's the Samuel character kind of takes a turn in general where he's just like, it's not like he was necessarily a good guy or a bad guy to be in and it's not like this even necessarily makes him a good guy or a bad guy. But he definitely takes a turn where it's like, oh, this character can be just as nasty as everyone else. And it's like he hits a point where he's like, okay, it's time to stop playing nice with all of these people. You know, I'm going to shoot this guy. Everybody's going to hear this crazy story I got. And then, uh, you know, the one guy outs the letters being fake. And he's just like, yeah, I don't care. It makes white people feel better. <laughs> grow, grow up, you know. <laughs> it's 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 interesting it's interesting you know i gotta say for me it was it was kind of kind of disheartening because i can totally see abraham lincoln writing the letter to you know numerous black soldiers during civil war because i mean there was like a whole whole regiment of you know african-american soldiers that fought for the union and i could totally see him you know wanting to write to those soldiers, thanking them for standing up and doing their, their duty as, as newly um, American soldiers. 
you know, and then finding out that it was a complete lie. I, I felt, I felt for the Kurt Russell character at that moment. And it's like, yeah, now I can see why, definitely see why, you know, each character is titled a hateful eight character in this movie. Mm -hmm. So like Jasper said, it was definitely one of those, holy cow, a quick turn moment that you didn't see coming. Well, and for Kurt Russell, it is like, I mean, I guess the driver's still there, but it's the closest person to a friend he had in there. Sam, you know, the Samuel Jackson character was, and obviously like one of the only people in there he trusted. So I guess there is element of that of like being betrayed. And it's like, well, okay, well, I got nobody on my side here, but like nobody in that building has anybody on their side. Well, I guess that's not true. Daisy does. She's got lots of people on her side. Yeah. what do you guys think of her character I know anytime there's violence against women in movies people get upset but there I know that was a a point of contention with people was just like the abuse her character gets yeah it is it is interesting because being raised in a certain decade I have a viewpoint where you know you can't you shouldn't hurt women never hurt women but yet the character, you know, you gotta, you gotta, I think you gotta step away from it and not look at her as a female character, but look at her as a, an evil character, you know, whether she's, she was a man or a woman, you know, if it was a dude hitting another dude, not a problem because of all the, ah, uh, yeah, I, I honestly don't know where I'm going with this. No, well, I get it because it is, because to me, it doesn't this is going to sound horrible. It doesn't bother me in this case. Like, I you get, know she's going to die at the end of the movie. Whether whether it's it's by hanging or by getting shot, she's a bad person. So her getting beat up throughout the movie doesn't really give you as much of a visceral feel as, say, mm, it was Sharon Tate. Well, yeah. And, like, it's also the way her character handles it. She at no point comes across as an abused woman or an exploited woman, she, you know, like everyone else, she's just like a nasty character. And obviously it hurts her character to get hit, but like, it's not like, uh, it's not like she's a beaten down woman or anything. She's what's the word? (laughs) What would they say in the West? Um, a nasty vermin, (laughs) just like, just like every other character in that building. And when she gets hit, like it pisses her off. But, like, she's, you know, I don't know. Like, it's just the way she handles it makes a big difference. And she's not really a sympathetic character at any point. She doesn't play it to try to get sympathy from any of the other characters or the audience. And the movie doesn't play it to give her sympathy. I kind of feel like it's definitely people being overly sensitive. But maybe I'm wrong. But I don't know. I have to agree with you. And you know what? She can take a hit, which is funny. Kurt Russell's character just cold cocks her right in the face and then she turns around and spits on the, on the Abraham Lincoln letter. Yeah. She can take a hit. And I'm like, okay, this is one tough ombre. Ombreo. Um, um, <laughs> we'll go with ombre. The, yeah. But no, that's exactly it. She takes a hit and she gives crap back. Yeah. I don't know. Um, probably not worth spending as much time on it as we are. <laughs> okay. So, the ending, though, because that's the thing. Like, this movie, I enjoy the bulk of this movie. I like the setting. It is in this one setting, but I feel like 
for this entire run time, they managed to keep that one small setting pretty interesting looking visually. Like there's some amazing shots in there. Like there's just like the, the, what is that little section with the chains hanging down? All the outside stuff looks really nice, but all the inside stuff still looks just as nice. The lighting is super dynamic. It's incredibly well shot for being in one location for so long. It keeps my attention. However, I think what separates this from a potentially much lower rating is how insane the ending is. It goes, <laughs> it goes like over the top horror movie gore. It turns it up to 11. <laughs> as soon as people start violently vomiting blood in other people's faces, it's just like depraved. It's so insane. How do you guys feel about the end of this movie? You go first, Jasper, because I, <laughs> I got to collect my thoughts on this one. When he shot uh, Bob the Mexican, mm-hmm. his head just explodes. I was like, what the Like, you know, okay. But then the thing that got me was when Channing shoots him through the through the floor. That kind of, I was like, okay, whoa, okay, hello. You know, like this whole time, because I remember seeing Channing Tatum's name, I'm like, where is he at in this movie? And then right as I thought that, there he is, you know. I knew, too, when he was on top of her, he was going to throw up in her face. So I was like, no, don't do it, you know. She ends up covered in just the nastiest chunks of gore <laughs> by the end of this. Yeah, it's just horrendous. Absolutely horrendous. Major spoilers for everything, listener. When Channing Tatum, when his, and you could tell, as soon as he comes up and he looks at her and he smiles, you're like, nope, she, he's done. His face explodes on her. And it's just chunks of brain in her mouth, all over her. She's drenched in blood and gore. And then she, like, hacks off dead Kurt Russell's arm. (laughs) And by the time the other two guys, like, and, you know, this whole last section is still also, like, there's still lots of dialogue and stuff that happens. It goes on for quite a while. But they're hanging her, like, they're pulling... Samuel Jackson and uh, the other guy, Walter Goggins is the actor name. Uh, Chris Mannix, the sheriff, are pulling her up, uh, you know, to hang her from the rafters of this place. She's got a severed arm still chained to her wrist. <laughs> They're bleeding out. She's covered in blood. <laughs> and why do they say something about, like, like I want to watch her squirm or I want to watch her hang or something like that? Like, it's so twisted. I forgot how bonkers it goes. It's it's funny because the ending is just like standing at the water cooler watching two people try to one up themselves. You know? <laughs> yeah. It starts off, okay, we you're going to shoot the the Bob the Mexican or Marco the Mexican, depending on, you know. Yeah. And so his head gets blown up. The English guy, his he gets a gut shot. You know, the sheriff gets a gut shot. Sam Jackson gets his his pecker blown off. It's just like, just boom, one after the other, just at right, right after the whole vomiting blood scene, it just, it just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Like, how can we top ourselves on the next one? Which made it kind of interesting. And I got to say, you had mentioned earlier that it seemed like nobody had a friend in that, in that room. Towards the end there, there were two friends. And, and they were just completely, did not see that coming with Sheriff Mannix. And Sam Jackson's character, 
like right at the end, they became kind of like friends because the crazy lady was trying to cut a deal and she was, you know, talking to, to the sheriff. She's like, well, hold on. Let me listen to her out. Let me listen to her out. And I mean, this long spiel, like maybe five minutes of dialogue trying to tell him, turn the the Sam Jackson character in, you know, shoot him. Let's, let's, let's get out of there. You know, I'll, I'll save you, whatever. And then at the very end, after he hears it all, he's like, no. You can just see like that that change that like Sam Jackson's like oh okay well this you know this racist mf'er is on my side yeah but that le- that line by the way is as Daisy's being hung Samuel Jackson's character says hold on Daisy I want to watch <laughs> I was like oh my god but that whole like the insanity of that whole end thing that's when it really occurred to me like this is just a big fu to everybody that was upset about the racial slurs and the violence in Django and pretty much all of his movies. And I mean, you're right. It is at the end, the two closest to being friends at that point are the, the extremely, you know, Samuel Jackson's character who doesn't care much for, for, for white, white folk and the uh, extremely racist former Confederate soldier guy as they're in this horribly gory scene, hanging a, a bloodied woman with a severed arm attached to her wrist. Like it's just, that's when I was like, this is just him being like, I don't care about what anything you guys say. Jasper, we'll start with you this time. Rating on The Hateful Eight. What What do you give this? I'm going with a four. Oh, okay. Going four. I liked it. And I think breaking it down this this way was kind of cool. So I'm giving it a four. How about, how about you, Matt? You know, after taking this time to, to, to look over the series again and, and think about it, my, my scores changed because... Jasper pointed out a few things to me, and this this movie has a lot of what I liked about Tarantino movies. It had a lot of like the Reservoir Dogs. It had Pulp Fiction. It had the crazy gore scenes of of Kill Bill. They're just you know so outlandish that you, they're almost laughable. And I, I think I'm going to change my score from from a, a, a three point seven five to a four point two five. You had to, huh? You just had to do it. <laughs> uh, yeah, okay. You listen to the show. I could tell. So uh, four stars All is right. what you're saying? Four, four stars. <laughs> Not everyone gets special Mike Wood treatment, okay? <laughs> One guest gets to pull that joke, and he ruins it for everyone else. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I got I to gotta come up with, with a sweet picture to send to you. <laughs> um. All right, no. I, Where can I find it? I don't really want to like assume your rating. Are you uh, are you really falling around four? Four? Yeah, yeah. Oh. I'm 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 falling on, on four. I went from three and a half to four. Okay. So <laughs> nice try, though, uh, dude. I knew it. I kind of <laughs> suspected you were going to try to pull something uh, uh, the first movie rating. <laughs> I knew somebody. Else. No, no. Give me this false sense of security and, and... <laughs> well played. <laughs> uh, start calling you a uh, Matt uh, Dormagoo or Dor Dorm Dorm. How do they say Dormammu? it? Dormammu? No, no, not Dormammu. No? Okay. <laughs> Daisy D- Dormagoo. Did you see? Also, I kind of looked this up after the movie as people caught this. Did the snowshoes look like wings behind her when she's getting hanged. I don't know Her-hum? that I caught that. Yeah, I like I, it though. I, I didn't catch that. Yeah, this is a fantastically shot movie. Like, there's, a, like I was saying, clearly, 
Like even though it's most of it's one setting, there's so much thought put into the visual aspect of it, and it looks great. You know, and we did not address the the fact that the place is called Minnie's Haberdashery. It's a haberdashery. And do you guys know what a haberdashery is? Yeah, it's a hat hat. Yeah, they make hats. I'm like, but you're not allowed to wear a hat in there. Yeah. And there are no hats <laughs> anywhere. <laughs> they don't sell hats. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to go with four stars on the Hateful Eight. I enjoyed it quite a bit. And actually, out of curiosity, since I have logged every movie I've watched for years in Letterboxd, I looked up what I initially gave it when I first watched it back in 2016 or something. And I was at four and a half for the regular cut. So I actually went down half a star. And I don't know if it's because of the extended cut or if it's just coming off of literally watching every Tarantino movie prior to but in terms of its place in Tarantino movies, obviously four stars is a pretty strong rating. I, it's interesting, and I you you have a good point. It has a lot of the Tarantino stuff I like, but it's also, and I don't think this is a detriment at all. It's missing some of the more flashy Tarantino isms, but I think that kind of works for it. And the score, I didn't mention the score is awesome, much more traditional than the usual Tarantino score, yet not because. For the most part, it's on you score by, uh, oh, what's his name? You know, I got to say, funny how you mentioned the score because I didn't I didn't really pay attention to the music. I got sucked in so much that the music was just kind of like incidental to the story. Mm-hmm. And I think that kind of works because when you, when you watch a movie where like the score just kind of like is loud and obnoxious, it kind of pulls you out of what's going on. Legendary, um, iconic composer... Ennio Mar- uh, Marconi, but this was an uh, unused score from The Thing, the movie The Thing. Um, <laughs> but right, and 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 there's parts of it you can tell, like I I can hear it. It's obviously very different than most of the music that actually got used in The Thing, but this was written for The Thing or around that time period, and never got used. But speaking of like you know iconic westerns, he did the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly score. Okay, I'm way off tune on that, but yeah, it's late. My voice has been funky this whole episode, anyway. But you know, he did all the the uh, like Clint Eastwood spaghetti westerns, so that's obviously where Tarantino keyed into him, like the connection there. But yeah, I I like the score a lot, and it's a lot. It was written for the thing, so it makes sense. Talk about another wintry bottle episode. Exactly. There are actually quite a few parallels to the thing. Um, them all being bottled up during the winter, uh, being stuck by a blizzard, not knowing who they can trust. They're in a room full of people, and some of them might be the others, like the bad ones. They can't trust, like none of them can really trust any of the other ones. Like, yeah, there's there's a lot of parallels there. Oh, man. My, and it's got Kurt Russell in a beard. You're right. Oh, my God. I, I, how did I not even think about Kurt Russell? Mind blown. I mean, if you throw, if you, it'd be very different, but switch out Samuel Jackson for this. Maybe that's racist to say. No, it's not. There's only one black character here. Switch out Samuel Jackson. You can't switch out Bruce Dern for Keith David, okay? <laughs> no. Switch out Samuel for Keith David, and you've basically got a prequel or something <laughs> to the thing. Oh, man. I'm I, Hold on. I got to change my, my GCU... Uh mashup right <laughs> cinematic universe is changing now all of a sudden 
Okay, I don't I don't know how I'm going to edit all that together. That really <laughs> rambled around, but uh, f- f- point is four stars. Moving on. <laughs> uh, let's see. What are we combining here? Okay. Hey, gentlemen. The movie studios are looking to do do some westerns, but they don't want something too gritty, but they also don't want something too... Sanitized? Family-friendly. So they think maybe if they combine a really nasty, gritty movie with a relatively clean movie, they can come up with the uh, ideal number western universe. (laughs) How would you combine this Hateful Eight and the Magnificent Seven in a numerical themed western universe? The Nasty Nine. Who wants to go first on this guy? I don't know why it's a guy. It is. (laughs) Before I jump on this did they establish when the magnificent seven happened was it after the civil war or before the civil war because i don't remember them saying anything about that that's a real good question i don't remember anyone saying anything so i'm just gonna throw this out there but in my head canon this comes after the civil war i think it actually might yes because the guy oh that's the 2016 one i can't imagine they changed it too much but maybe they did well, we're going to go ahead and say it is, at least in the 2016 one, and I can't imagine they changed it too much, but maybe they did. The one character that's, like, become a coward, but he obviously has some, like, PTSD kind of fear issue going on. Yeah. And I I could be wrong. Maybe that's from, like, one of the weird, like, War of 1812, but uh, I kind of assume that was from the Civil War. Okay. But I, I'm not positive on that. Well, in my head, Ken, I'm going to say it, it, it comes after. Any objections? Nope. Nope. Cool. So everything that happened in the Magnificent Seven stays, as usual. Same with the Hateful Eight. But what we learn is that Bob, or the Mexican Marcos, is a surviving member of the Calavera um, group. <laughs> oh, I love it. Okay. And he actually hooked up with the um, Channing Tatum's uh, – Tatum Channing, I can never remember which one, how this pronounces was his band of of marauders. And so um, several years after the Magnificent Seven happens, Hateful Eight happens, and uh, Vin and Chris, you know, uh, the, the Yule Brenner and the um, Steve McQueen characters from the Magnificent Seven are out hunting down the last of the Calavera clan. And uh, they find out that one of several of them have joined up with. Uh, What's her names? Dupree, du, du, whatever band. Oh, the did uh, du, Dormammu? No, Dormagu, Dormagu, Dumagu. Yeah, the Dormagu clan. So they go. They go. Well, last we heard, they were they were heading off to Red Rock, and so Ben and Chris happen to come across Minnie's haberdashery, and they find the sole survivor, a sheriff of Red Rock, Chris Mannix. And they managed to patch him up and ask him what happened here. And he explains everything that happened. And that's when they find out that, hey, Mexican Marco, the guy that has no head over here, is you know part of Calavera's old clan. So uh, we should move on to Red Rock and you know get this guy back where he belongs. They sh- so then they show up at Red Rock. And uh, sure enough, there's the rest of the Domagu clan, the, uh, you know, what do they say, 40 men? 
that they had. Yep. Yep. And uh, let's say about 10 of them are from Calavera's clan. So the sheriff's got to clean up the town and uh, he enlists Vin and Chris's help to, to get rid of the uh, Domagoo clan and uh, Calavera guys. And then there's this huge battle at the end of the uh, end of the show where there's just blood and gunshots and gun smoke. And for some odd reason, there's this little Asian guy in the corner holding a samurai sword. <laughs> oh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, I like that. <laughs> <laughs> is that is that how it ends? It ends on this on this uh, samurai sword guy. Yep. <laughs> oh my god! So, <laughs> uh, I love it, and I have no cinematic universe now because <laughs> your end of it was basically what I had, um, <laughs> except for the well, not the very end. I didn't have the samurai sword guy. I love that. <laughs> that's that's just like a nod. That's a knowing nod. Oh, that's great. Yeah, so mine was basically played on the idea that, you know, that bluff that Daisy was, or they didn't ever reveal it to be a bluff or not, when she said, you know, there's a gang of 40 men in the town, and as soon as they figure out what's going on here, they're going to ransack the town. And that's the pretty obvious setup for, yeah, we're going to get, what were their names? They were, you said it, Chris oh, and uh, Vin? Yeah, Chris and Vin. So I'll say, to make it different enough, after that, we'll even come in on a character that nobody knows. Like, we'll start with a character in the town, the one who, you know, winter's over. The gang goes and goes out to the cabin and sees, like, their leaders are all dead and stuff. So then they decide to go ransack the town and hang around. They're basically trying to take over the town. So we'll follow some new character to go uh, recruit people. And fortunately for him, he comes across a couple of, a couple of gunslingers who have, uh, you know, familiar history with a situation like this and it's of course chris and vin and uh i guess the fun could be like who they recruit maybe they come across oh god i wish he hadn't died in Django. i was gonna tie Django into it that's cheating but maybe they'll come across a you know a african-american couple and the, the guy's got a bad attitude but he's very familiar with with uh <laughs> with the killer killing white folks. And, uh, so he joins up, they join up with them. So we'll get a little Django action in there. And I say couple because can't leave the wife out. Broomhilda. I, I wish Christoph, Wal Christoph Waltz is going to be in it as a new character. Cause he should just be in all these things. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Christoph Waltz could be, um, Tim Roth's brother. Ooh, God. Yes. That's good. Oh, I like that. Now we're spitballing. <laughs> and, uh, there were he, he was tapped to play Tim Ross's uh, character. Was he? Yeah, but uh Quentin gave it wanted Tim Roth to play it. Oh, interesting. Uh, yeah, he likes he likes working with Tim Roth. And it makes a you know, also then again has that tie back to Reservoir Dogs, which I'm so glad you mentioned cuz that had not even occurred to me. And then also they're going to find an Asian man to join the crew <laughs> but you know he'll be kind of the odd the odd ball not not because of the racial thing but because he doesn't use guns he, he uses swords um but he's <laughs> but he's deadly with those swords so yeah that's that's it that's all i got it's basically just a magnificent seven again except 
with the uh, t- tangentially tied to <laughs> Django and Hateful Eight. Jasper, what, what do you got, man? See, mine was hard because I was going to say it would be cool if, if everybody was still basically alive. But um, I thought a really cool one would be the Magnificent Seven trying to take, a town, take the town from the Hateful Eight. Oh, okay. Um, I see what you're a, saying. Like just a knockout drag out fight. You know what I'm saying? Like just would it be basically be like are you saying for whatever reason uh like the characters even though they all hate each other of hateful eight it, to survive they would band together they band together okay yes. interesting yeah. i like that that's fun hmm. see that's 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 where it gets tricky with movies where the majority if not the entire cast is murdered <laughs> you know like what do you do yeah everybody's everybody's dead pretty much so that jasper's yours feels like a what if scenario which i like a lot it's like well what if and then you just come up with something i don't know some wacky thing and it it feels like it would have to be like a miscommunication issue Mm -hmm. so that like the magnificent seven know that these bad dudes are in the cabin i'm sorry i'm just taking over your universe Good. I'm I filling it in. I'm filling it in. So they they find out these bad dudes are in the cabin, like the gang. So that's why they they were hired to take them out. So that's why they're attacking the cabin. But all the like, for example, you know Samuel Jackson, the sheriff. Uh, I always mix the actor names with the character names, <laughs> and Kurt Russell. Like they're not bad dudes, but all they know is they're being attacked from outside. So that's why they all band together. <laughs> right. <laughs> Tarantino likes to do alternate histories. We do alternate histories of Tarantino's histories. <laughs> Which will only just get us more in trouble. But, you know. <laughs> uh, and uh, we're going to switch out. <laughs> you know what? I'm going to continue by trend. Let's switch out the Magnificent Seven actors with the Hateful Eight actors. <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm on board. I'm going to say Samuel L. Jackson is the Yul Brynner character. I'm on board. Uh, okay. who's, who, who will Kurt Russell play? I still want to put him as a Steve McQueen character. No, he could be the guy that doesn't know that there's not a mine in the... In the in yes, the, in the... yes, perfect, right. Michael Madsen should be Charles Bronson just because they both kind of have gnarly faces. <laughs> They, they have the That's voice. <laughs> and uh, who's going to be Holtz, the young kid? Oh, I want to say Channing Tatum. Oh, God, you're right. That's perfect. <laughs> Bruce Dern could be uh, the James Coburn character. I don't know why. I, I, I'm losing. <laughs> uh, this this premise has lost its appeal to me, but so I'm, I'm losing steam. <laughs> He's going down, Captain. <laughs> And uh, Jennifer Jason Lee is uh, um, who is left? <laughs> oh, the uh, the shell shocked. Um... That's it. Yeah, you're right. Uh, what was he? Was he Calavera or Lee? Uh, Lee, I think. Yeah. <laughs> all right, all right. We don't have to keep this going <laughs> on. <laughs> this this bit is it's it's floundering a little bit. That's okay. Hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna throw this out to you real quick, but yeah. So the sheriff in the Hateful Eight, his name was Chris Mannix. Yes. Okay, 
plays a sheriff. So in the 1960s, there's a TV show called Mannix. And the main character's name was Joe Mannix. And he was a private investigator. Mm-hmm. Could he be the great grandson of Chris Mannix, the sheriff? Yeah, probably. I mean, if Django has the great, great, great uh, grandmother of like Shaft, because her last name is Vaughn Shaft, sure. <laughs> no, so you there- know what? In Tarantino's mind, though, it probably is. Mannix, there's no way that's an accident. That's totally yeah. his time period of television. So so there you go. We got a little 60s reboot crossover. Oh, yeah. Well, I guess that's it, guys. But this feels like quite the show. This feels like quite the show. <laughs> it's been fun. I've enjoyed this. Good, good. I appreciate you joining us on this episode. Um, I'm glad to be able to get you into one of the... Tar- I was really hoping to get you on one of these uh, Tarantino episodes, and I'm glad we finally did. Yay! Woo! All right, one more time. Do you want to tell people where they can find your stuff? Sure. You can find me on Twitter at 60s Reboot, where I tweet about anything and everything that's not political. And then if you want to listen to my show, which is the 60s Reboot podcast, you can find it on the EMC network. Also, it's at emcpod.net slash 60s Reboot. Yeah, I'm sorry. I know that does. I, I know that doesn't roll off the tongue. We'll try to get you something better. It's, uh, honestly, it's better than blogspot blog 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 blog. And it's my exclusive podcast for the EMC Network, or the EMC Electronic Media Collective Podcast Network. It's a mouthful, man. <laughs> it's a mouthful. And then, if you want to listen to my show with my kids and I as we review comic books, it's uh, comicswithmykids.blogspot.com. Com. And both shows you can find on Apple Podcast, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and CastBox. But if you want to see all the um, information and, and, and check out everything, check out the emcpod.net. Yeah, awesome. And like I said, uh, we do have one more episode this season. We'll be discussing uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I don't know... Yeah, I'm guessing that episode will go... I, I missed the window of opportunity to jump on actually being irrelevant. But so that'll probably go up next, you know, episode. And then, I, I don't know, I guess we'll take a little break. I mean, that's why we do seasons, right? So we can take a break once in a while. So I guess that's it for this episode. Uh, I, as always, have been Randall Sylvie. Uh, you can find me at Twitter, at Randall Sylvie. And uh, guess what? Sometimes they are political. Uh, however, if you want to want to avoid that stuff, uh, follow us at GCU Podcast on Twitter. The most controversial we ever get on there is occasionally I tweet at uh, movie theaters when they get their trivia, their, their Quentin Tarantino trivia wrong. Because I don't care how many <laughs> movies Tarantino says he's directed, he directed Death Proof. That counts. That counts as a movie. You don't know your trivia. Marcus Theaters. <laughs> or of course you can find you can find more of these episodes at grawlixpodcast.com it's g-r-a-w-l-i-x podcast.com or apple podcast stitcher cast box all the places jasper what about you you can find me on twitter at caranzo media which is k-o-r-a-n-s-o media 
and uh, soon to be on the uh, Grawlix YouTube uh, playing some games. Ooh, soon really? I can figure out some stuff. So. Oh, you got a computer now. You're right. Yeah. Apparently, this mic is not that great, so I don't know if I want to start recording that just yet. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. And uh, once again, Matt, thanks for joining us. Uh, Look forward to having you on the show again. I look forward to being here. Like I said, I really enjoyed this. I hope to be able to podcast with you guys again. It's going to happen. I swear. Faux show. I have not talked about it. It's fine. I'm angry about it. Okay. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I'm a little upset. Um, but it's cool. I'm being friendly. We're friends. I like you. Doesn't <laughs> <laughs> make me feel What's your, Jasper, we're friends. I like, uh, we're friends. I like you. What's your address again, by the way? How, how can I get to your house quickly now in the middle of the night? Well, after you're sleeping, though? <laughs> <laughs>